0: You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we will talk with the legendary director and composer, Greg, John Carpenter, about films like Halloween and his new album. But first, we have new albums from Goat Girl and Mad Lib to review. The Crack a pen. That is a little bit of a song called The Crack from the second album by South London's Goat Girl on all fours. Greg, I first discovered this uh, four- piece band of brilliant women uh, as a buried treasure and I highlighted them uh, a song from this upcoming album a couple of months ago then I dug deeper into their uh, first album they are recording for one of the most respected independent labels in history still one of my favorites rough trade Mm -hmm. Jeff Travis he always has his ear to the ground for up and coming groups that are doing things very differently. This second album is a departure from the first. This band is covering a lot of ground in a short career that started in uh, 2016. Uh, As I said, four women came together uh, with strong political beliefs and adventurous musical spirit. The new record is produced by Dan Carey uh, of Kate Tempest and Bat for Lashes fame. Uh, Let's get into playing a track and we'll come back and give our reviews. This is a song called P-T-S-T, as in, you know, the favorite British drink, by Goat Girl on Sound Opinions. P-T-S-T
1: That is PTST from Goat Girls' new album on All Fours. Jim mentioned second album, uh, and a change from the first one. The first uh, album was full of these punchy guitar driven tracks. I love that record. Uh, this one is uh, not a 180 degree move away from that, but it, it is different sounding. More of a club vibe, more atmospheric. The song's more stretched out, ref- reflecting how the band uh, wrote. The, the songwriting approach changed. It was more communal, more mm-hmm. about them in a room. Uh, developing these tracks and letting them sort of percolate and and marinate a little bit in in uh, the atmosphere in that room and you know at first you're kind of like wow it's a, it's a big change, but uh, you know the more I listened to it, the more i I grew to love it um, you know to to say it's a mood album would um dismiss it, i think, uh, but it does has that effect of sort of being a trancy, cool club track like you might hear mm-hmm. it at a at a club. You know what really reminds me of, Jim, uh, is that band from L.A., Warpaint. Uh, a yes. lot of that vibe in this record, and that, that's a good thing for me. Um, when I say that to say it's a mood album would be uh, unfairly dismissing it, it's because there's a lot of substance to these songs. I mean, these songwriters are addressing uh, the idea of uh, uh, heavy topics like climate change, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. and making it feel kind of light and clubby, but at the same time, uh, really skewering some problems with the way we address these kind of matters in our lives. You know, in a song like Body Baba, you know, which is very mm-hmm. much of a, a lightweight sounding thing, it's not that at all. It's, it feels like we're in infection. The singer is basically saying the idea of us uh, approaching climate change is to dismiss it, to, to shove it under the carpet and pretend like it's not happening. Well, it is happening.
0: Feels like we're in The song The Crack hits on climate thing, change right. as well.
1: Uh, tearing up and burning down leave all sense underground. I'm glad you played that song PTST, Jim, because I think it really nails what uh, this band is all about in terms of the way it addresses uh, major problems in our society in kind of an everyday sense. The song documents what happened to the band's drummer, uh, Rosie Bones, who identifies as non-binary, on a ferry in in England. And, uh, you know, a man walked by her and spilled hot tea on her, injuring her. It was essentially an assault. And then the man turns away and walks away without an apology. Doesn't even say anything. Yeah. And, And, you know, in that little moment, you get a lot of information about... Uh, you know, the way the social mores are breaking down in our society because of gender identification. So they're addressing these big topics in a very uh, everyday kind of way uh, that uh, fits in beautifully with the way this music is being constructed. You know, an
0: unfair rock critic shorthand, uh, Greg, would be that the first album was strongly inspired by Sonic Youth. Boom! Mm -hmm. Noisy guitars, right? And I think, and I, uh, you know, I don't read others' reviews until after I've listened about ten times and formulated my own thoughts. I'm shocked, shocked I am <laughs> that Warpaint comes up, but nobody is saying Stereolab. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of Stereolab influence oh, yeah. in terms of an amazing drummer, uh, the straightforward motorik beats, and the way it interacts with the bass and the uh, la 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 la, ba 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 kind of vocals bouncing around, and the uh, incredible nonchalance in the delivery of uh, vocalist-guitarist Claudie Cream and her fellow guitarist-vocalist uh, L.E.D. Ellie. Uh, they all have, you know, remote mm-hmm. names, all right. I love it. They're singing so calmly and yet they are skewering somebody <laughs> like that jerk on the ferry. I love this album. I really do. It's going to be a great year if we have ten that are better than Goat Girls on all fours.
1: That is the call from the new Mad Lib record, Sound Ancestors. Mad Lib, a.k.a. Otis Jackson Jr., a DJ, producer, multi-instrumentalist, and also a rapper who's been making records for decades now. Uh, He is best known, perhaps, for his collaborations. We recently paid tribute to MF Doom, Mm -hmm. the the late rapper who was working with uh, Mad Lib on uh, his best known record, Mad Villain. Jay Dilla was another long-time collaborator with Mad Lib, the late Jay Dilla. Freddie Gibbs recently a project with, with Mad Lib. Talib Kweli, the list goes on. He's remixed the Blue Notes Records archives. Now he's got a new album called Sound Ancestors. That's a collaboration with Fortet, that British producer, Kieran Hebden. Hebden was best known for his work in Fortet, which sort of combined that IDM and, and a little bit of post-rock. And I think what uh, you know, his friend uh, Fortet uh, said to Madlib was like, you've got to make a record that really encapsulates who you are. Let's sum you up. Let's bring you to a new generation of listeners who may be confused by this huge body of work you have. Make that big, bold record that you've got in you that sort of brings together all your different influences. And that was what they were attempting to do uh, with Sound Ancestors. Uh, We're gonna talk about it in a second, but let's play a track from Sound Ancestors first. It's called Road of the Lonely Ones on Sound Opinions.
0: That is Road of the Lonely Ones from the new album by Mad Lib, Sound Ancestors. Uh, some people are saying the first proper Mad Lib solo album, although he's been recording for decades. If the goal, as you said in the introduction, Greg, was uh, for for ted asking his friend, uh, this guy who so inspires him and so many others in the hip-hop world, to... Put out a record that sums up who you are. Well, Mm -hmm. that's a a losing project from the get-go because who is Otis Jackson? Otis Jackson is a million... Different right. sounds and styles and personalities and moods. Uh, if he's working with MF Doom, if he's working with Freddie Gibbs, uh, you know, there's a track on here, Two for Two, uh, for Dilla. And he's paying tribute to uh, fellow sampling genius uh, hip hop producer extraordinaire Jay Dilla, who passed several years ago. Uh, and he really is Dilla in that track. He's channeling Dilla as he would do Dilla. Got you. You know, in the song we just played, Road of the Lonely Ones, that is a great example of a super knowledgeable producer digging deep for uh, the Philly soul sound to build something new. A couple of tracks sampled there from the ethics to great effect, right? The problem is we have 16 tracks and there is so much variety at times you will think your playlist skipped ahead this is still Mad Lib? <laughs> As a class, in the genius and the invention that can still be brought to diverse sampling, Sound Ancestors is a fantastic record. As a consistent listen, I would pare it down by at least a half. I mean, there are tracks that uh, just don't do it for me, like Hang Out, Phone Off. And we don't really get uh, enough of Mad Lib Rapping (laughs) that might have given us a different context for some of these songs, or am I wrong?
1: Well, I think you're wrong, because uh, I I think it's all about the sampling, (laughs) the art of sampling. I think Mad Lib is one of the uh, people who sort of built that art form, uh, or helped build it, anyway. I don't Uh, disagree. The the idea of taking sampling and building an entire record out of that. There are no uh, guest vocalists. There are no cameos on this. This This is the crate digger, Mad Lib coming up with these sounds and putting them together. And then with Fortet sort of uh, adding a few things here and there, but basically kind of sequencing and orchestrating it. And I think Fortet encouraged him to go wide and long on this record. So you've got, you know, jazz, you've got reggae, you've got electronic hip hop, you know, it's, it's all over the map. And I agree with you. It is, it is all over the map, but I think it really works well as a collage style piece. Every piece in that in this record is not an indulgent kind of, you know, here's a bunch of samples that I made. He's making songs out of them. And in that sense, he's in a class with people like DJ Shadow, like on the Introducing record, or, or Jay Dilla, his hero on Donuts. These are, these are great songs in addition to being Uh, great examples of the art of sampling and what you can do out of it. So I think there's a a great record. There's a
0: consistency with shadow. Yeah, like I said, as a musical collage, brilliant. But as a consistent, satisfying listening experience, I like half of it.
1: I think you gotta look at it more as a greatest hits art record. A greatest hits (laughs) without without the you know it's not a it's not a collection of past stuff. It's like new stuff. It's kinda like here's what I can do. And in that sense, I don't think any of these songs overstay their welcome. If you haven't listened to Mad Lib before or you know just a little bit about him, this is here. not only his best yeah. album in a lot of ways, but also a great introduction to what he's all about.
0: Do you have thoughts on Goat Girl or Mad Lib? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, and let us know what you think. Coming up, we'll talk with legendary horror director and composer John Carpenter. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions, I'm Greg Cott, he's Jim Dirigatis, and that's a little bit of the theme from the classic horror film Halloween, directed and co-written by our guest today, John Carpenter. In addition to being a great director of movies like Halloween, Escape from New York, and They Live, my favorite, uh, Carpenter composed the music to his films, and that music became iconic in its own right, even when removed from its original context. Carpenter recently released a
0: new album, Lost Themes 3, and he's joining us today to talk about that as well as his career as a composer and a filmmaker. What an honor. John, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. From the beginning of your career as a director, certainly an incredible list of films, many of them that formed my life from Halloween and They Live, Assault on Precinct Thirteen, et cetera, et cetera. You always did the music. And I think I wasn't aware of that until the last couple of years when you began giving interviews more about the music and and touring. My goodness. From early on, what was the impetus to
2: do your own soundtracks? Well, originally, and I'll be really honest with you, originally it it came out of necessity. Because when you're making a low budget film, when you have no money, you can't hire a composer or an orchestra. So if you have to do it yourself, a synthesizer is the best way to go because you can sound big, you can sound full with the synthesizer. And so that's that's the route I took.
0: Well, you grew up in a musical family, and uh, I hear it was violin originally thrust upon you. How do you go from violin not being very happy with that to playing in synth bands and in 60s bands, and then the film thing happens, and then the film and the music come together? What is that evolution
2: like? Oh, boy. It's not something I particularly planned out. I grew up musical households. So I grew up around music. The violin I, I played for several years, wasn't any really any good at it, and wasn't happy doing it. And But in the meantime I picked up a little piano and then I got interested in the guitar. And this was around the time of the British invasion so the Beatles influenced me greatly. And I started playing guitar and then I played in a band and it just evolved from there musically. And it wasn't something I pursued uh, vigorously at all. It, was, it just fell in my lap, like a lot of things. The movies, mm. the movies was different. And that was my first love. And that I, I fell in, deeply fell in love with throughout my young years. And I saw a movie in 1956, and it, it so influenced me that i decided you know i have to become a movie director i had figured out by that time that that's the guy who does all the creative stuff so the director what was that what was that
0: 56 movie
2: john that was forbidden planet yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And, uh, actually, that was the first movie with an electronic soundtrack. All electronic music, it was, and it was just I still listen to that soundtrack. I love that soundtrack.
1: You know, obviously being a movie fan, were you paying it as much attention to the soundtracks as you were to the, the visual images? Oh, sure.
2: When you go to a Hitchcock movie, back in those days, you had a, you know, it was always a spectacle, and it was always spectacular because of Bernard Herrmann's music. It was just yeah. great. Yeah.
1: The music was sort of like inherently part of the package that you would you were thinking about. You wanted to do it all. Were you concerned that okay, I'm just not creative enough to do the soundtrack work at the or even have the time to do the movie that I've just made justice with the the music. I'm curious how you integrated those two artistic impulses.
2: My my integration of that was uh, really simple. It's one job I completed before I started the other job. So directing a movie, or writing and directing and producing, whatever I did, I would do that completely. And mm-hmm. finish finish the movie up to the uh, cut. I have a cut of the film with no music on, it. and then I would sit down and start the music. And after spending my time getting the narrative right and getting the movie correct, then I would add uh, music to it. And uh, mm-hmm. I in the beginning, you know, I just didn't have any money nor time. So what I did for the first uh, in the very beginning was to record like two or three themes that I could play in various places throughout the film. And uh, then as as my career evolved, I finally got to uh, score to picture which was just a whole different experience. And uh, then the technology just keeps growing and keeps changing for the better and keeps maturing. Mm-hmm. And now the technology is unbelievable. So uh, that's, that's how it happens. So that's, that's fascinating, John. When you're on the set
0: then with Jamie Lee Curtis or, or Kurt Russell, it wasn't like you had the tune in your
2: head you, you left all of that until later. No, I would be singing uh, a Beatles song or something, you know. Because
0: I... <laughs> <laughs> I've heard other directors like, like you know, Cameron Crowe. Very different genre. You know, he would actually play music he didn't have the rights to yet to the actors on set to try to get them in the sort of mood he wanted. He, of course, wasn't a musician, a music critic. You know, you are a musician, but you didn't have the tunes in mind when you're making the movie. I make the movie, and then I put the music in the That's right. Two separate jobs.
2: That's right. The ultimate ultimate director who used music on the set was uh, Ennio Morricone. He would have the music composed before he shot the movie. And then he would play yeah. the mm-hmm. music to the actors. I mean, that's just unbelievable.
1: John, uh, you're, you're noted for you know, pioneering the use of synthesizers. Do you, do you vary uh, the kind of keyboards you use, or is there a go-to?
2: Well, uh, I vary them, and uh, I've landed on a couple. One is the Korg. I've been using that a lot recently. For the bass uh, sounds, uh, the Oberheim is, is just incredible. But even that's mm-hmm. been supplanted by you know, brand new programs. You can buy strings by Hans Zimmer. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You, can, you can get mm-hmm. uh, the BBC Orchestra to play for you. Uh, it's yeah. incredible stuff. I mean, the, And the, the movie technology also is amazing nowadays, digitally. I mean, kids who want to make movies, well, you can do it. Just go do it. You've got the technology at your fingertips. No yeah, excuses. Yeah.
0: <laughs> create. Go out and create. So, so you work a lot with your son, uh, Cody, and uh, Godson, Daniel Davies, uh, frequent collaborators, a uh, generation younger than you. What's that, what's that like, getting to work with them, and what's the back and forth like?
2: It's a dream. I mean, look, When the, one of the reasons I wanted to go touring with the music from his albums, is I got to play with them live. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just an opportunity that I, I, I never ex- imagined I'd have. And it's a dream come true. So uh, they bring all sorts of gifts to the table. Uh, Daniel, is a, by uh, family, by blood ties, is an uh, amazing guitar player. You know, his dad was a lead guitar player, so he he can play guitar like nobody. I mean, just incredible. And my son is a virtuoso uh, keyboard player. He can play anything. Mm-hmm. So I mean, even we even uh, these days, when we're doing scores like we did the score for Halloween Kills, the new Halloween out, uh, movie, uh, I will sing something to Cody, and he can play it. So I don't even have to play anymore. I can remote control. See, this is what I'm
1: looking <laughs> at. <laughs> yeah, that's very Brian Wilson of you there, John. Yeah. Uh, that's cool. Um, you, uh, you talk about these Lost Themes uh, rec- recordings. Uh, it's become a franchise. It's the third, third volume. Uh, you talked about them as a soundtrack for the movies in your mind. So do you kind of do the titles come first or you, you make the music up and then say, oh, this sounds like, oh, this sounds like The Dead Walk or this sounds like Weeping Ghost. Or, I mean, how do you, how do you uh, arrive at the themes?
2: Well, we, I just, we make up the titles after the music is done. We started uh, the uh, Lost Themes 3 albums. We started making up titles with one, a skeleton was originally called Skeleton's Penis. And <laughs> my, uh, my, my Son of God suggested that that wouldn't be good for the album. I wanted it to be on the album. I thought we'd be avant-garde and daring, but no. Yeah. So it became Skeleton. <laughs>
0: Are you really, though, John, do you ever feel and, and do Cody and Dan uh, feel that, uh, you know, I mean, John Carpenter can put out uh, Skeleton and Unclean Spirit, the two tracks that we've gotten so far from Lost Themes. But could you put out, you know, Happy,
2: Smiley, Sunny Day? Well, if you would pay me, I would be glad to. Uh, <laughs> just put up a little money and you got a smiley, happy day. <laughs> well, you think people would want
1: that from me? Oh,
2: I don't think so, but do you? I don't know. What the hell? I don't know. Maybe I should try that, huh?
1: Is I, there, you know? It, is there kind of an understanding uh, that this would... It, it'll be in the, on the darker side of, uh, you know, in, in keeping with the most John Carpenter movies? Is that, Or is there, uh, like, an open-ended thing?
2: Well, that's kind of the stuff that I gravitate towards, and so I force my... Yeah the kids to gravitate towards that too, to come up with, you know, thematic stuff that sounds like that. But listen, we, if you, with the right, for the right money, we'll, we'll do you, we'll give you a little happy-go-lucky... You know, John Carpenter, for hire. Yeah, that's it. Oh, hell yes. Are uh, you kidding?
1: Yeah. Well, and John, when you're making the soundtrack for something like Halloween, was this totally kind of, you know, your own imagination working, or were you listening to different kinds of music, electronic music, for inspiration. Well, I
2: did listen to uh, some electronic music for inspiration. I listened to music in general for inspiration. Bernard Herrmann, Dmitry Tiamkin, I listened to... a lot of classical music, I listen to rock and roll, Rolling Stones, the Beatles. So there's a lot of influences in there. Uh, but it, I didn't just sit down and listen to a bunch of electronic music and say, "Okay, now I've got it." See, you got to yeah. realize that the early scores these these were scores that I could play. So they're bone simple. I mean, they are so simple. Because I can't play very well. From, the mm-hmm. Halloween is the most complicated thing I had to play. And I had to work on that uh, over a, a period of years just working on that exercise of playing.
0: When I listen to Halloween, when I go back to that original uh, uh, film, you know, you can hear. Uh, a guy without the orchestra without the talents of the orchestral musicians and, and his compositional talents, his conducting talents, you can hear uh, your take on Herman on uh, Bernard Herman on a, uh, a synthesizer played simply and it was a synthesizer not by choice, I guess that's what Greg was getting at, it was like this was the convenient, relatively inexpensive instrument that I can use and make noise with. That,
2: well, that's correct. A, a, a piano and a synthesizer, that's absolutely correct. You guys uh, mm. you guys have me nailed. You have me nailed. <laughs> My ability is very limited. I don't have the talent, but I
1: have the, uh, uh, I don't know, the bullheadedness just to move forward. So, it, it, and is the stuff that you're writing, um, I wonder how that's evolved? Because, you know, are you actually putting notes on paper or is it just strictly kind of in the kind of head arrangements, as they say. You know, guys, you, know, you, you in a room inventing stuff on this instrument, and how is it working now with the, with the trio format? Is it similar in approach, kind of more improvisational in the moment, or, or, is, or is stuff actually written down? Is it composed?
2: Nothing written down. It's all improv, mm-hmm.
1: all of it. What's your favorite piece of music that you've worked on, the, the, the stuff that you've composed? Well, if, you, if you had to point somebody, hey, you know uh, let's let's not talk about the movies let's talk about the soundtracks or the or the albums that you've made what piece stands out for you i have no idea uh <laughs> I,
2: it was really fun to do it all but it's not fun it's hard work see yeah. this is why i kind of stopped it all because jeez i can't do this anymore i was making a movie and doing the sound uh, track to it it's outrageous i don't have a particular favorite because uh, the music for movies is inspired by the images, and each movie has unique images to it. So the music to uh, uh, Halloween Kills is very different than the first Halloween I did. They all go along with what what's up on the screen in terms of uh, soundtracks.
0: And Halloween Kills is finally coming out, I think, in 2021, too,
2: right? I know that's what That's what the plan is, but you know what? We just don't know. I don't know what's going to
0: happen. We, nobody knows, yeah. right? I mean, how do you how do you feel about that, uh, John? Uh, both from the director's end, people now going to watch on their screens at home or on their phone, God forbid, uh, and and also as the live touring musician and you know your big tour touring circuit in 2017. I mean, both of them are gone to us. The experience of a big screen movie theater communal experience is gone. The experience of live concerts are gone.
2: Um, do you think they'll they'll come back? Oh, boy. Well, that's a big, giant question there you got. Uh, uh, well, it certainly has changed, and it's not what it was. I'm hoping that it returns to what we had, but I can't guarantee that. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, you know this it's is all driven by something that we have no control over, and neither do the studios. So...
0: Does it matter to you if people only see uh, a film uh, at home versus uh, are, are you one of these people? You know, so Greg and I listen to so much music as music critics, right? We don't have the luxury of talking about the $10,000 Bang & Olufsen stereo. First of all, music critics don't make that kind of money. Second of all, we're listening so much all the time. You know, the high fidelity experience isn't one of our. So I'm kind of torn. I mean, there's there's movies that I saw uh, in a theater that, that couldn't. That, that aren't the same seeing at home, but but not always for the reasons you think. I remember I saw Halloween at the Stanley Theater in Jersey City, right? Uh-huh. So the Stanley Theater was a vaudeville palace that had fallen on hard days, you know, and it and it it kind of was uh, in a rough neighborhood, and uh, you know people were smoking and drinking, and bums would would come in and sleep, and uh, you know I always remember that the African American kids would cheer whenever the white kids got killed in a movie like Halloween or Friday the 13th. And I'd be sitting there a little scared. And every once in a while, a rat would run across your feet. Um, uh, And and this was all, this was perfect. I didn't want to see a John Carpenter
2: movie anywhere else. And you see, this is what my entire career has been geared to that experience. And that is exactly... (laughs) Exactly the kind of movie experience I want everyone to have is what you had at the Stanley Theatre. <laughs> so, are we missing something by netflixing it at home? Of course, you know? you know, unless you have the rats. Uh, it's uh, well. First of all, you know, in in a, in a perfect world, we have a communal experience with an audience, yeah, which is you can't uh, match that. That's just incredible to have. Uh, but uh, again, it's not my my choice. It's not what I want, and I don't know what to do about it.
1: We've been talking to John Carpenter, the great director and composer on Sound Opinions. John, thank you so much for being our guest.
2: I had a great time. Thank you very much for having me. That
0: wraps up our conversation with director and composer John Carpenter. As always, if you want to share your thoughts, record a message for us on soundopinions.org. When we come back, Greg and I will share some of our favorite film scores. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And our conversation with director and composer John Carpenter got us thinking about some of our favorite film scores. Now, uh, film scores are different from soundtracks, and we're defining them as pieces of music created specifically for a movie. Jim, why don't you go first?
0: Well, Greg, I'm shocked. I've made uh, one passing reference, apparently, to this musician, but he was formative on young Jim, hmm. circa age four, five, six, when I would sit as long as they would run on Saturdays and watch the Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies Warner Brother cartoons. Um, there was a big... Carl Stolling revival in the 90s. Stalling is another one of those fascinating musical careers, a story that doesn't get told often enough. He spent two years at Disney early on, but it was a little stifling. He moved on, and then for 22 years, 1936 until his retirement, he scored every single Warner Brothers cartoon short. Bugs Bunny, Roadrunner, you name it. More than uh, 600 <laughs> cartoons, right? Now think back if you had haven't seen a vintage Warner Brothers cartoon in a while. Think back to the craziness that in these three or so minutes uh, you know so much happens so quickly and for every single burst of action the roadrunner driving the coyote off the cliff you know Elmer Fudd's gun exploding on him right all these things breeze by and all of these things have 10 or 15 seconds of different music written for them and it'll Mm -hmm. go from ragtime jazz to uh, Bugs Bunny singing you know opera to uh, crazy Crazy electronic music or avant-garde bebop that, you know, could have uh, by musicians that could have been sharing the stage with Coltrane Mm -hmm. or later Ornette Coleman. Now, often Stolling was taking uh, classical pieces or writing short pieces and then this other weirdo that he Mm -hmm. fell in love with, Raymond Scott. Raymond Scott is one of the very earliest pioneers of the synthesizer, and he recorded tons of music that Warner Brothers licensed, and then Stalling would put this together. So in a way, Stalling really was a sample artist. You know, I think if forced uh, to choose one memorable Stalling Scott collaboration, it would be Powerhouse. Yeah, that's great. Sometimes called chaos in the Powerhouse. (laughs) Basically, whenever you've got a Warner's cartoon where there's a malfunctioning uh, uh, production line, you know, and a million things flowing off it or any piece of machinery uh, or a chase, you're going to hear this and you will recognize it instantly. Mm -hmm. I am certain anyone who grew up uh, spending any time in front of a TV. Carl Stalling, drawing on Raymond Scott with Powerhouse on Sound Opinions. (laughs) Powerhouse. Da, 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 da. I love that, Craig.
1: Greg. Greg is smiling. You no. love it too, don't oh, you? Yeah. Uh, in terms of soundtracks, uh, my favorite era might have been uh, the 70s with uh, the black exploitation movies. Um, this, this genre of music of uh, urban movies uh, that in fact spawned an entire cottage industry of great movie soundtracks. And in fact, I would say that a lot of the soundtracks were so good that they eclipsed the movies in terms of artistic value. Curtis Mayfield, for sure. Yeah. What I consider my favorite from that era, Across 110th Street. Mm. Some people may know the movie strictly because of the the, the song title, Across 110th Street. But the, the soundtrack itself is incredible. It's uh, written by bebop pioneer J.J. Johnson, the great trombonist, Mm. who evolved into a a really funky dude in the 70s writing his soundtracks. And, uh, you know, he was in his 50s at the time collaborating with Bobby Womack uh, for the entire soundtrack. So Womack added some vocals to some of the tracks, including the leadoff track and the title song from the movie Across 110th Street. A lot of people may remember this being used very uh, auspiciously in Quentin Tarantino's 1997 movie Jackie Brown it, it kicks off the movie and also ends it and then Ridley Scott b- brought it back yet again for American Gangster in 2007 but the best use of it of all is, is in, in Across 110th Street and the entire soundtrack is terrific kind of um, uh, creating the mood for this you know these films are essentially about uh, African-American struggle in the inner city and while the movies themselves were about violence and, and there was mayhem on the screen. Yeah, I think drug the, dealing. The, I think the soundtracks, including Womack's, when they did have lyrics, were getting to the idea of the humanity behind it, the, the poignance, the fact that these people were in stress stressful situations all the time and got into the nuances of what it felt like to be a human being. Here's a title track from a great 1972 film and soundtrack, Across 110th Street, by Bobby Womack and J.J. Johnson on Sound things.)
2: I was the third
0: brother of five doing whatever I had to do to survive. I'm not saying what I did was all right.
1: Trying to break out of the ghetto was a day-to-day fight. Being down so long, giving up didn't cross for mine but I knew there was a better way of life and I was just trying to find but you don't
0: know what you do till you put under pressure. Across 110th Street is a
2: hell of a test. Across 110th Street, pimps try to catch a woman that's
1: weak. Across 110th Street, pushes won't let the junket go free. Across 110th Street, woman trying to
2: catch a trickle.
1: That is across 110th Street, the title song from the 1972 film, one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. Greg, I'm with you. What a great song. Uh, I'm going to go to Goblin next
0: for my next uh, score pick. Uh, We can't talk uh, to John Carpenter in a show and then talk about scores without talking about the great Italian progressive rock band, Goblin, who uh, began scoring films for the Italian director Dario Argento, a huge influence on Carpenter, in 1975, uh, Profundo Rosso in 75, and then Suspiria in 77. These guys existed as a band. They were progressive rockers, which meant uh, they played in odd time signatures and, and had uh, uh, an analog synthesizer you know? mm. <laughs> and were virtuosic. Um, you know, I. Uh, I played Suspiria a million years ago on the show as one of my all-time favorite Halloween tracks, so I want to go to something different that they did. Early on, when George A. Romero was revered by worldwide horror movie fans for Night of the Living Dead, and he made a sequel to it, Dawn of the Dead, 1978. Uh, nope, that movie was not catching on. I remember seeing it at, at just... Before I turned 14, holy cow, Mm -hmm. did that warp my brain, uh, and being struck by the music. Now, some of the music is by Goblin, uh, especially the longer cut. Argento did a cut of Dawn of the Dead for European distribution, and uh, the music is—there's more Goblin in it, Mm -hmm. and it's actually credited to Goblin and Dario Argento. But the creepy use of the Moog synthesizer and the odd rhythms, and the just the, you know, nobody does hide melodrama better (laughs) Greg than the Italians right I mean how many centuries of opera have you got that is essentially that anyway I'm gonna play uh, uh, a track that uh, Goblin called Zombie Z-O-M-B-I the Italian uh, title of Dawn of the Dead from uh, Romero's great great I still don't I there you know night of living dead great great movie and has the racism subtext but then dawn of the dead you know being (laughs) anti-capitalism the zombies the zombies return to the place they loved in life most to eat everybody and that would be the shopping mall (laughs) there is the ultimate capitalist critique if (laughs) you ask me goblin on sound opinions Goblin, zombie from the soundtrack
1: uh, to uh, Dawn of the Dead. Yes, indeed. You can't think of Dawn of the Dead without the music. You no, know, it just, it, no. It just <laughs> makes the film in so many different ways. And, and all and, the Argento films, the same yeah. thing, yeah. Well, and I would say the same about all those Sergio Leone westerns uh, yeah. from the 60s, uh, you know, with the uh, Ennio Morricone soundtracks. Um, that I cannot separate those two things. Uh, the movies were great, the soundtracks were incredible. In fact, Leone left a lot of space in his movies for the music to carry the scenes and the plot and the character development uh, in in these movies. The, the My favorite one I think might be Once Upon a Time in the West from 1968, where I think the combination of these sumptuous and at the same time dissonant classical orchestrations, because. Daniel Morricone was very much a modernist classical composer, yeah, combined with elements of you know rock and 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 the contemporary pop culture at the time, you know the trebly guitars, et cetera. And in the case of this Surf. one song I'm going to play, uh, you know, referencing the blues very directly, Leone was so taken with Morricone's creativity that he had him compose the, tr- the soundtrack actually before the movie was made. Was, Here's what I want. Here's what the yeah. movie's going to be about. Yeah. Make a soundtrack for me. He had the uh, actors and actresses performing to the soundtrack. So yeah. the soundtrack would be blaring uh, over the su- speakers while the actors were going through their paces. And they, they said there would be tears on the set. People would cry during the, wow. while they were hearing the music for the first time. And there's lots of space in the movie, as I mentioned, these long silences. I mean, these characters don't say a whole lot in the movie. No, no there are nothing the, 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 sometimes. The expression is coming from the music. And it's particularly true of Charles Bronson in Once Upon a Time in the West. That he's the guy playing the harmonica all the time, right? <laughs> the harmonica <laughs> is his voice. Yeah. It's got this kind of bluesy tone. He's cupping the harmonica like that. That's a trope of Western movies, like the, the cowboys sitting around the campfire yeah. playing the harmonica in a country-ish kind of way. He's kind of cupping it like a blues harpist would. and But he's playing a blues kind of melody, but slowing it way down. So mm. it sounds like there's death coming around the corner. Something's <laughs> going to get you any second. <laughs> I mean, it scares the bejesus out of you when you hear it. It's so eerie. And uh, here's an example of what I'm talking about with uh, Ennio Morricone's uh, musical score basically uh, evoking an entire scene and carrying a theme throughout an entire movie with one track. Man with a harmonica from Once Upon a Time in the West on Sound Opinions.
0: Man with a Harmonica by Ennio Morricone. Uh, Greg, I guess a, a subplot of this show is that the Italians sure do movie score as well. Uh, Morricone yeah. or Goblin? As always, we want to hear what you think, though. What is your favorite movie score? Record a message for us with your thoughts and why on soundopinions.org. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week?
1: Next week, Jim, we're uh, due for another Buried Treasures episode. We're going to play some tracks that are flying underneath the mainstream radar, but that we think our listeners need to hear. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast
0: wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our
1: sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, You can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Sound Opinions is produced, as always, by Andrew Gill
0: and Alex Claiborne, and we want to welcome our first Columbia College Chicago intern, Sol Delgadillo.